0: Well, hello, everyone. So glad to be with you today, both in person and online. My name is Ernie, and my wife Tamiko and I have been uh, part of Central here for over 15 years. It is such a privilege to share with you tonight as we continue our study in the Book of Acts. I put a cartoon up. Why? Kind of, kind of. I think it's funny. Um, I heard he turned water into wine, but it was a rather poor Mesopotamian Cabernet. You know, it just goes to show you can't please everyone in life. I know that. So, but I will start off by asking the question, what is a miracle? And why do miracles happen? You see, the text that we'll look at today, obviously, contains what is considered a miracle. Now, a while back, there was a a large survey of Americans, age 18 to 70, that was conducted asking if they believed in miracles. 36,000 people participated. 78% 78% of them said yes. And even among the non-affiliated, the non-religious people, 55% said yes, they believe in miracles. Now, now, some of us throw around that term miracle pretty freely, you know, like for guys, you know, Christmas Eve, I headed to the mall to get that gift, you know, it was busy like crazy, but I found that perfect parking spot right beside the entrance, it's a miracle, you know. Um, Maybe, uh, you know, I was a little bit short on cash last month, but, you know, there was a check came in the mail that I wasn't expecting for the exact amount that I needed. It's a miracle. Maybe, uh, you know, I sent little Johnny out in the backyard to play and he started shoving rocks in his nose and his throat, you know, just because that's what boys do. And he started to choke. I came out just in time to help him. It was a miracle. Or perhaps for some of us with teenage kids, they took out the trash without being asked. It's a miracle! You know, (laughs) these are all good things. I don't believe we get anything in life that isn't a gift from God, quite honestly, and, and be thankful for those. But these are not miracles by the definition we're going to be looking at today. You see, I'm talking about things that cannot be explained away by science. A miracle is a moment when natural law and the way the world normally works, that stops. God steps in and does something fantastic. And then the natural laws continue. So, our miracle definition is, a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. It is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Now, in the Old and New Testament, another term for miracles was signs and wonders. Now, a sign, by definition, points to something. So, as we go through this this text today, let's just keep that idea of a miracle being a sign as we look today. Now, if you've been following our series, you will recall that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles and disciples of Christ received their first hand from Jesus' 40-day crash course on the Old Testament, and how Jesus was the fulfillment of so many of those prophecies. He ascends into heaven, but not before he tells the 120 followers to go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Nine days later, without warning, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes to the believers with the sound of wind, tongues like fire, and the ability to speak in foreign languages. As a large crowd of Jewish men are gathered, Peter delivers his first sermon. 3,000 people are saved, the church has begun. And as they continue to meet, pray, and teach daily, more people are saved. So we don't know how much time transpires between the day of Pentecost and the event that we're going to look at today, but there's no doubt that the apostles were pretty stoked with what's going on and what's happening. We heard last week how believers devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and they're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit daily. Now, if you have your Bible with you, please open it to Acts chapter 3, Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. I know we just had this passage read to us, but I'm going to read it again just because I like it so much. Here we go. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's a great story. So I'd like to look at this question of miracles in three parts. We're going to talk about preparing for a miracle, the purpose of a miracle, and finally the proof of a miracle. So let's start off. Preparation or preparing for a miracle. Now let's consider the place or the setting that the story takes place. Peter and John are heading to the temple at three in the afternoon, as they likely did every day. You know, even after Christianity began, the Jewish men would often meet in the temple to teach, to pray, and pray. Uh, Uh, and and to meet one another. And you'll recall that Jesus even often frequented the temple to teach as well. Now, the temple was actually quite small, uh, and would only be entered periodically by the chief priest, but the area around the temple uh, that we reference in this text was huge, covering an area the size of about 10 football fields. And this is all considered part of the temple facility. The first temple was built by King Solomon, We read how ornate it was, but unfortunately, it was totally destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was built, but at the same time, the wall of Jerusalem was restored during the time of Nehemiah. Then about 400 years later, about 20 years before Christ, the facility received a huge facelift by King Herod. He added more plazas, staircases, walls, and of course, gates. One of those gates was called Beautiful Historians say that it was a huge two-door gate, 20 feet tall, covered in bronze. It took Herod about 30 years to complete the temple upgrade, and he humbly called it Herod's Temple. Now, this is the temple that stood during the time of Jesus' ministry. Unfortunately, Herod's Temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and it never really got rebuilt. When the Muslims took Jerusalem in the 7th century, the Dome of the Rock was built on the Temple Mount, where it stands today. So Peter and John likely walked the same road to the same temple gate they did every day. And the same time they were arriving, a lame man who had been carried is set down on the ground beside the gate to begin his begging. And just as he sat down, he goes to work. You know, alms for the cripple! The man's been lame since birth. We're told in Acts 4 that he is over 40 years old. So for this man, he's relied on friends and family to carry him to the gate to beg, and then rely on them to carry him home again. He is a cripple with no, he stand with no status and no hope. I wonder how many times the apostles have walked by this man. I wonder how many times Jesus walked by this man. And yet he remained lame. You know, Jesus could have healed him. I wonder if perhaps Jesus even walked by and he said, hey, not now, just wait. I don't know why God chooses to heal some people and not others. I don't know the timing he may or may not choose. Perhaps I'll understand someday in heaven. Not knowing the mind of God and trying to figure out why some people are physically healed and, and others despite faithful praying, or not, you know, that's tough. And this is where we must exercise trust through faith. You know, if we don't and we try to figure this thing out, we'll just end up bitter, confused, maybe angry. Let's remember that whenever we are longing and praying for a miracle, and see our call for a miracle fail, we must remember that the love of God never fails, and His desire is to comfort us within those difficult times. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So looking at this text. Notice how Luke includes quite a bit of detail in this account, doesn't he? he? He talks about the time of day. It's the ninth hour. He says the name of the gate, which is beautiful. He even says the hand which Peter uses, the right hand. Never, though, does he write the name of the lame man. I think this might be indicative of this man's existence. You know, people pass every day. Sometimes they may look at him, and and when they drop a few coins in his cup. But unlikely anyone has ever taken the time to make physical contact or even ask his name. You know, just as an aside, how does this man's existence compare with people we pass every day? Begging, busking on our sidewalks, streets, or outside businesses. You know, it's so easy to stop seeing them, isn't it? I'm so thankful for great Christian organizations, NGOs, individual Christians, some who attend this church, that make a priority of seeing and helping the needy in our society. So, this is this lame man's routine, perhaps for decades, always on the outside of the temple. He's not allowed to go in, he's a lame man, he's unclean. And in that day, it was quite common for people to assume that this man was lame due to sin. And since he was lame, we are told from birth, it must be on account of the sinfulness of his parents. How would you like to go through life with that stigma, you know? I'm a product of sinful parents. (laughs) Wow. It's unlikely he's the only one begging by the gate to the temple courts. You see, fortunate for him, one of the three pillars of Judaism is kindness or generosity. So, So begging by the temple gates during the time of prayer, when lots of Jewish men are walking by, is a pretty good spot to appeal to the conscience and score some spare change. So that's the scene. Nothing odd, same old. The lame man hadn't scheduled a meeting with the apostles, and they didn't go to the temple looking for him. But God, in his sovereignty alone, has prepared the apostles and the heart of this lame man. The way the text reads, it doesn't appear that Peter and John left their home with the intent of healing this man. They are, unlike, they are likely going to pass by like they would any other day. We read that seeing Peter and John about to go in, he asked them for a gift. This is likely when the Holy Spirit impressed on on Peter and John that a miracle is about to happen. And Peter and John respond. You see, Peter and John had prepared their hearts through prayer. God had prepared the scene according to his timing, and the Holy Spirit provided power in preparation of the miracle. But Peter and John still had to respond. You know, when I started writing this talk last week, I'm kind of sitting at my desk of failure. You know, three times in the past 12 hours, I'd felt the Holy Spirit kind of prodding me to engage people I was speaking to. There's the the young, outgoing Filipino guy driving the the rental car shuttle that I was on. There's a sightsee worker that I sat next to on the flight going to Fort St. John. And there's the man, the business guy that was sitting in the airplane, in the headset with an airplane that I was flying. The Holy Spirit gave an opportunity in each of those times. It, was very, it would have been simple. Did I respond? No. Now, I'm not talking about trying to sell people stuff here either, you know, whenever we start thinking, you know, seeing people's prospects for my latest business deal or something, you know, but rather seeing them with the love and the need of Jesus. Not selling, just bringing God into the conversation. You know, the following day, I gained pray for the Holy Spirit to give me opportunity, and three times that day I was able to have easy conversations with individuals regarding faith and the importance of the soul over the physical stuff. Praise God. So the scene is prepared for a miracle. Now let's look at the purpose of the miracle. I know, I just finished saying we don't really know the mind of God, so I can't really know the purpose of the miracle. However, he does give us some pretty good clues. So in this event, verse 4, it says, And Peter directed his gaze on him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting? Likely money, right? You know, a few coins to buy him some food. This is what he's come to expect over years of begging. Why would today be any different? There were at least three things that that man needed that day, right? Money, healing of his physical body, and healing of his soul. Not much different from many people around us. Maybe even ourselves. If given the choice to, to choose between money, physical, and spiritual, which one would you choose? But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Oh, yeah, that's that one on. But what I do have, I give you. Like, no money, man! Come on! What did Peter have? Peter had at that moment healing power given by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So he says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Yeah, right. I'm a lame man, remember? You've seen me here before. Everybody's seen me here before. You know, Peter says, rise up and walk. The guy likely hesitates. So Peter reaches down with his hand. And this is a big taboo. This is an able-bodied Jewish man, walking, walking to the temple, reaching down to a man unclean, unfit to enter the temple. And in an act of faith, the lame man reaches up, extends his hand, and receives Peter, who helps him up. So I think first off, this miracle demonstrates God's mercy to heal this lame man that day. I actually kind of think it's also a beautiful illustration of the gospel, We know that we're all sinners, separated from a just God. But God, in his mercy, provided a way that we could be spiritually healed and reunited with him. Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived and taught, and then he died on a cross for payment for our sins. He rose again, and now he intercedes for us. Like this beggar, we have nothing to offer. We cannot earn our salvation. We must accept this invitation of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Christ reaches down to us with a love we cannot even begin to comprehend, and he says, rise up and walk. So he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Well, so obviously, along with the heels, feet, and ankles, God gave him the ability to use them. You know, this was a 40-year-old man who had never walked in his life. Picture your 12-month-old at home learning to walk. Ah, bang, you know, hitting their heads, they're falling down, they're being babies, right? Well, this guy, it says, and leaping up, he stood and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. No baby steps here. Walking and leaping right into that temple, where he's been forbidden to go his entire life. Now, he wasn't walking and leaping and praising Peter. You might say, but, you know, Peter was the guy who reached down to him. Peter healed this guy, right? Wrong. Peter made it clear that this miracle was in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus was a pretty common name, actually, in those days. But Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, yeah. That's that guy that caused quite a stir around here a couple months ago. That was that Jesus that was crucified. Verse 9, it says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. So this man, a few years older than Peter and John, had spent many years begging at the gate of the temple. He was an outcast. He was inferior. But he was familiar enough that he was recognized and known by many people. People knew this guy, and he was lame forever. His healing improved his quality of life for sure. But that was only one effect the miracle had. A second effect was that this miracle also authenticated the message of the gospel. The name of God, of Jesus of Nazareth, was proclaimed. We'll see in coming weeks the effect and the credibility that this event had for Peter and John, with the crowds gathered in the temple grounds as well as with the religious leaders of the day. This miracle was evidence, a sign of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the lives of these Christ followers. The miracle of healing happened at the right time as this young church was still kind of sorting things out. A third thing this miracle did, I believe, is miracle also brought glory to God. And it says in verse 9 and 10, it says, All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who was the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, today, I often kind of uh, doubt news of miracles because it seems that some branches of the church have kind of turned miracles into a commodity. You've likely seen the ads. Perhaps you've even attended an event. You know, show up Friday at 7 p.m. for our miracle night and watch the Spirit work. Come and be healed. God doesn't want you ill. He wants you healthy and wealthy. Basically making God into our personal vending machines. You know, I'll pull out my loony, put it in the machine, and out pops a miracle. It just doesn't seem right, does it? But given these questionable miracle accounts, we want to be careful and not discredit all reports of miracles, of God choosing to do these, because God can still choose to bless with miracles even today. There are some Christians that hold to a cessationist view, it's called, that they believe that the time of miracles ended with the apostles. I believe that miracles can continue today. And seeking miracles is not wrong. We just want to ensure that our request Our actions and any outcomes confirm the truth of the gospel message, acknowledges that any healing is attributed to the mercy of God, and that ultimately that God is given the glory. You know, we have a beautiful missionary family associated with us here at Central. John and Bonnie Esau and their four children work to disciple pastors and and support churches in Thailand. And a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Thailand as Central was launching a new partnership with a young pastor there. While we were there, we visited a small rural church in Mayer I probably didn't pronounce that correctly, and we were told the story of a new Christian and a miraculous healing. Well, this lady, named, her name was M, that was healed. And I asked if M lived nearby. Well, they said just 10 minutes down the road. Well, being a skeptic of these healing events, I figured I'd rather hear the story firsthand. So I said, let's go! So we met M in her home. She has a small business and house along a major roadway. And she was an incredible host. She ensured we all had a cold soda before she started talking. And this is what she said. M said, I had stage three leukemia and lupus. Doctors gave me one month to live. My body was swollen and in incredible pain. My husband had to assist me to move and to walk. Now M was also a prominent Buddhist, and uh, you can see the shrines throughout her home where she would offer, sacra- you know, uh, offerings to different spirits and gods. But M also knew an elder from this many proud Church. She had heard about Christianity, and she'd asked to meet this pastor, Chalom. So M met with Chalom, and he told her that God is more concerned with her heart and her health than her health. Sorry, God can heal. But more so, God wants to give her true life. So Shalom led both Em and her husband to faith. And then Shalom prayed for her physical healing, but it didn't happen immediately. He taught them a simple prayer, and they went home. And this is where it gets freaky. Em says, I woke up at night in pain. I prayed the prayer I was taught. My toenails and fingernails cracked. And black plus pus flowed out, and then I went back to sleep. At this point, like, the hair in the back of my head is, like, standing up. I'm like, like what, cracked nails, flowing pus, and you went back to sleep? Are you being serious with me right now? Like, what, what? You know, it's crazy. M woke up pain-free. Her joints didn't hurt. Her swollen body looked normal. She knew that she was healed. Months later, M returned to the doctor. He did tests, and he asked her what... What she had done, where she had gone for treatment because she was completely healed. M said it was Jesus. The doctor laughed at her, but he did admit that whatever happened, she should be thankful. So I'm now told that, that M faithfully tells people about Jesus constantly. She prays for healing for every sick person she meets, and God has healed many people in response to her prayers. Whether individuals are healed or not, her faith has continued to grow as she proclaims the gospel. Her life is a constant song of praising God. So in these two accounts, we have the lame man 2,000 years ago and M three years ago. What was the greatest miracle? The miracle of healing their bodies or the miracle of healing their souls? Quote from uh, William Lessure, it is not the church's business in this world to simply make the present condition more bearable, The task of the church is to release here on earth the redemptive work of God in Christ. How often in this life are we consumed with our physical health and well-being before our spiritual well-being? Where do we put our effort, our time, our resources? How often do we feel all concerned for our own physical health, and perhaps we even begin to fear death? We get anxious, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we're all going to die. You know, Psalms 90, verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even in some reason strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. James four fourteen: Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, I have some family members and friends who are ill. I have some family and friends that, By virtue of them being alive, they're getting closer to death every day. These family members aren't Christians. They may be spiritual. They may be good people. They know about God, but they've never surrendered their life to Jesus. Perhaps you can think of people in your own life in a similar state. I admit that too often getting caught up in wishing them well, Pray, you know, I might pray, they get well. Pray for wisdom for the doctors. Pray for good medicines. These are all good things. But all too often, even in my own private prayer life, I don't emphasize and pray for the salvation of their soul, for their accepting Jesus Christ. So we talked about preparing for a miracle, possible purposes for a miracle, and finally, let's look at the proof of a miracle. The lame man... Trusted in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and he stood up and he walked. Am trusted in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and went home and was healed. The proof in these miracles are the first-hand testimonies and the witnesses. You know, when Luke wrote the book of Acts and recounted the story of healing, there were hundreds of people who were there were witnesses, and they could have easily called him on it and said, "You know, this is not right." I'd like to address one other miracle. You know, there's a common argument two thousand years ago. It's the same argument we hear nowadays. Jesus Christ was certainly crucified, but he didn't really rise from the grave. The empty tomb thing—that's just because his disciples—they stole the body. They wanted to make this thing happen. First Corinthians 15 says, "And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain." We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, if Christ never rose again, then all this Christianity thing, you know, it's nothing more than, I don't know, kind of a well-meaning or actually somewhat warped social club, quite honestly. What are we doing here? I love this quote by Chuck Colson. Now, I know Watergate was a long time ago, and compared to recent politics, Watergate during the Nixon administration doesn't seem like a very big deal. But it was a big enough deal to send men to prison. Chuck Colson was a senior Nixon advisor and became a Christian during the Watergate legal process. And this is what Chuck Colson writes. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. As we conclude here today, let's look at once again at how our text finishes. It says, All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let us all continue to be filled with wonder and amazement at the work of God. Let's prepare our hearts each morning with a fresh filling Of the Holy Spirit. You know, the resurrection of Christ was a miracle, and through it, the name of God is praised. The healing of a lame man is a miracle, and through it, the name of God is praised. The healing of M is a miracle, and through it, the name of God is praised. If you choose to place your faith in Christ, your salvation is a miracle. If you're currently following Jesus, you are proof of a miracle. Let's all be mindful to praise the name of God. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for your truth that comes out in the Bible that you've written to us that we can recount and look at these proofs, these of your mercy, of your love for us of your authenticity in demonstrating the power of your spirit working through people. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Right now, Lord, in this week, we pray that everybody that's listening identify a couple of people in their lives, in their spheres of influence who have not yet surrendered their life to you. Lord, put it on our heart. Cause us to pray. Cause us to be bold, accepting the the challenge of your spirit. And Lord, we just desire that your name is proclaimed in in, in everything that we do, say, and certainly in in our homes and our marriages, family life, everything. Lord, we just thank you. In your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.